Welcome to House of Herders podcast, discussing all things dog, from training to life experience. Your hosts today are Alana and Gemma. Let's get started. Today I would like to talk about dogs that will not take food outside. Primarily because I get so many calls about this and with 9 out of 10 dogs that I work with, this is a problem. It's also a problem with one of my own dogs sometimes. So Gemma, do you come across dogs that will not take food outside? Yep, I do. Um, I've come across it a lot in one-to-one training as well as we get people who want to come to classes who are concerned about coming to classes because their dogs won't take food from them unless they're in the house. That's very true actually. So what do you think the reasons are that dogs don't want to take food outside? Um, I think there can be a couple. So I think we talk a lot about over arousal um, and that can be one of the reasons why dogs won't take food outside. If they're just finding the environment or what's going on around them a little bit too much. And also I think it kind of comes down to some dogs. They want to just get going, don't they? They're like, right, we're outside. Let's go and do what we're here to do. But the owner obviously wants some level of engagement with their dog or maybe they want to train outside and sometimes the dog just really wants to get going. So for example, where I live, we live like five minute walk from a park. So the minute that we get outside, my youngest dog has absolutely no interest in me. He won't even look at me. He won't take food. He's just literally at my gate pointing his little body towards the park because he's like, that is where I want to be. And with him, it's very difficult to get his attention because he just wants to get going to the park and he will not take food outside at all. So I guess that kind of falls in, it's not the same as the dogs that won't take food in class, but I guess it's along the same sort of track that they're just so, I guess in a way, overexcited by their surroundings. I don't know, I don't know if that's the right word, overexcited by their surroundings. I know that in the case of my own dog, that's one of the main reasons but when it comes to classes I guess there's a lot of different emotions involved isn't there yeah definitely and I think it's not always necessarily going to be over arousal and that they are just really distracted um it could be a little bit of anxiety as well if the dog's not used to a class environment or not used to being that close to other dogs um then it can be something like that you're working with too Do you remember in one of our focus classes we had a little dog and he wouldn't take food at all in the class when he first started. He would just look around the room and pace back and forth and he had absolutely no interest in food. Do you remember him? I do, yeah. Um, Yeah, and I remember as a trainer I think you get that kind of moment where you think, I wonder if this dog is going to do all right in this class and I think I'm really glad we stuck with that dog and the difference that we saw in him, in him and his owners over the course of a couple of weeks was really quite something. What I found most interesting about that case, I remember, I think it was, I was teaching that class, wasn't I? Mm-hmm. I was a teacher in that one. And I remember finding it really fascinating that as soon as we brought in settle work, he took to that straight away. And it was almost like that became a safe zone. So as soon as he knew what was expected of him, he was able to actually start to take food and start to engage in other behaviour as long as he had that safe spot. 
which I think I found really interesting because I honestly thought adding more to the puzzle was going to be problematic in the end. Um, and I thought having him moving around to go onto the target and back off would wouldn't really work because he wasn't taking food and he wasn't he wasn't interested in toys either so I was really quite concerned that that was just going to be another problem for him yeah and I think what was interesting when we started the settle work as well was um the first thing I noticed that when we handed over the mat that they were going to be working with was that he was straight over to it for a sniff um, and he was sniffing, and it was one that we had used in the class before, so it would obviously smell like another dog, um, and so it would just kind of like set off a couple of interesting things in my head about, well, is there something in that, and that he's using scent as a way to process what's going on with him. I think that is a really valid point, and I think that dogs use their noses a lot more than we realise, and I think a lot, we don't give them enough credit for that. And I don't think that we always, when we do classes, we don't set the class up to be investigated through their nose, which I think would actually be very hard to do, be very difficult to organise that. But I think it would be so much better for the dogs to have some way to actually be able to communicate to them that it's okay here and it's safe. And as you said, the minute that you handed over the blanket, he was straight in and about it with his nose. I don't doubt for a second that he was picking up those good vibes from the dog that previously used that mat and gaining information through that mat as to how that other dog felt when they were using it. As we know that when we work with dogs, they really scent from so many different parts of their body that whilst that dog was on and off that mat, they would have been leaving lots of traces of information for another dog to pick up. And I'd like to think that he picked up on some really good energy from that previous dog. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, I think it, it was quite good in that our first class that we had on before his class, most of the dogs in that one were pretty settled and quite enjoying the class. Um, didn't really have the same struggles to settle into the class, I guess, as this dog did. Um, so you're probably right in that when we were watching them and when we were training with them, um, they seemed really happy and really engaged with what they were doing. And I think that kind of breaks down a little bit to how we would normally run a class. So when we teach classes at the centre we work in, we often ask owners to bring their own mat with them from home, so it's a smell of comfort. But because when we do most of our classes on a Sunday, we do them in an equestrian barn. So we don't ask people to bring blankets from home because they're going to get absolutely trashed, to be honest. They're going to get caked in sand, they're just not going to be something you want to put in your washing machine at home. So we provide those things in class. And you kind of wonder, had they brought a blanket from home, would it have actually had the same effect? Because it would only have scents on it from that dog in home, not from another dog that had been in that environment. Yeah, definitely. And I think when we had a discussion about that dog after it had left, one of the things we noticed was that their owners described him as being quite an anxious dog around other dogs, um, a little bit scared of other dogs at times, but that wasn't actually really what we observed when he was in class. So <laughs> actually, I think it looked like what he was dealing with was a little bit of frustration and that he wanted to say hello to the other dogs. He did want to learn about them and sniff them and do all of that. He was just not really sure about the best way to do it. Um, and I think getting to sniff, getting to get those scents 
was something that he found really useful. Um, and like you say, if it was a blanket from home, he wouldn't have had the opportunity. And yeah, it would have got covered in sand. <laughs> Which would, nobody wants to take home a sandy blanket, really, do they? <laughs> Not at all. And I guess that kind of is where you'd bring in levels of arousal, I would guess. So you can have over arousal, you can have a dog who is perfectly aroused, like what you kind of want in sports or in any sort of training, really. You don't want your dog to be dead flat. You don't want them to be just hanging around bored. You want to kind of get them hyped up and you... Well, I do anyway. I like it better when dogs have a bit more pizzazz about them and they actually want to do things. Yeah, I agree. I think it's much easier to work with a dog who's quite comfortable and kind of happy and confident in themselves um, when you're working with a dog who, like you say, is a little bit flat, a little bit not sure, not sure if I want to do this. Um, it becomes a bit more of a challenge just firstly trying to figure out how to motivate them first. Most definitely and I think it's almost like it's easier to work with a dog that is in the higher end of the spectrum. Like a dog who is maybe ready to start barking and lunging or a dog who's just super excited because you can then you then have access to a variety of different things that you can use. It doesn't have to just be food in that case. This is where you can bring out the toys. This is where you can bring out a tug toy and get the dog engaged with that. And sometimes that will actually bring a dog down a little bit in that kind of arousal hierarchy. Back to a level that you can work with. And obviously you do get dogs that go off at the deep end and, you know, they just end up completely over aroused and over excited. But I think with a little bit of careful handling and a little bit of experience behind you, you can really use that to your advantage I know that in class I'm always quite pleased when a dog comes in that's a little bit on what I would call the spicy side. So a little bit excited, a little bit like they they want to do things and they've got big feelings. I would always rather work with a dog with those sort of behaviours than a dog who really doesn't want to get involved and maybe doesn't want to take food because I think that there's a lot more work to be done there. We can te- technically classify both of them as being over aroused. But the way you deal with both of them is completely different. Yeah, definitely. I agree with you on that. When we think about there was another dog who was in one of our other classes who I think anyone on seeing how she came into the class (laughs) would have maybe thought, oh, this dog is going to be a bit of a handful. Um, She came in barking, jumping on the end of the lead, um, just being a little bit over the top. Um... But actually, once we started working with her and got that engagement with her owner, her focus was beautiful and the stuff that she achieved with that dog was was absolutely brilliant. Um, and it was just that she was so up for training. that She just wanted to train, to have a wee bit of engagement. Um, and when you got her focus, she had an absolute ball. And it was just really different in comparison to the other dog that we've spoken about who didn't want to take the food at first, didn't want to engage. Um, And I guess if you are thinking about how much you gain from a class and from going to that class, it's maybe the progress looks better for a dog that's a bit more up for training and a bit more up for taking food. I think when you've got a dog who's super up for the class um, and they maybe didn't look like that at first, it maybe was a bit like over arousal, the barking and the lunging, but once you get into it, they're really into the training. 
it's a lot easier to see progress there, I think, than with a dog who comes into the class not really wanting to engage, not taking food, not that interested in toys. And progress is different to different people. I think those both of those owners got something out of the classes and both did really well. But it looks like a lot more progress from when you're looking at it as an owner point of view. I think we were quite careful to make sure that the owners of that dog that was a little bit less up for it realised just how much progress they actually did make because it's not as obvious as the dog who went from barking and lunging to being a bit more chill and a bit more engaged. I think it's so interesting because when you maybe read in a book about these two different types of dogs, you would initially assume that a dog starting off quiet and more so disinterested would be easier to work with than a dog who is over the top. And I think we see quite a lot of a lot of the time, this is going to sound really awful, we see dog trainers want to bring dogs from this higher excited state right down to almost like a pancake state where the dogs are super calm, they're super chill, they're just not stressed, they're not worried, they're just exhibiting calmness basically. And I don't know, I don't I don't really like that for my dogs to be honest. I would rather my dog was a little bit more spicy with life, I guess. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like there is, like you say, a lot of trainers out there who want dogs to be under control all the time or obedient all the time. Um and I get that and that we obviously need to have control of our dogs and our dogs need to live their lives in a way that's acceptable um, to the rest of us. But I would rather be with a dog who is a little bit excitable, who wants to train, who's excited sometimes and who is motivated to do things with me and engage with me um, rather than a dog who's almost sort of like a broken spirit I guess and, and isn't really happy anymore and just trying to keep itself on that calm even level that we seem to want from it. That's very true so I guess when we look at these dogs we've got our dogs that are very spicy and we've got our little dogs that are you know a lot more quieter and maybe refusing to take food and both of those dogs are refusing to take food but for very different reasons and I always find it's easier to deal with a dog that's exhibiting more outward behaviour than a dog that's exhibiting less outward behaviour. With a dog that's, you know, lunging and barking, it can be quite as simple as just taking a few steps back to reduce the threshold level. It can be as simple as playing a pattern game or it can be as simple as re-engaging the dog with, with things in its surroundings. So like when we think about our little quiet doggo, engaging the nose, so even having like a marker word that shows that we're going to start to use our nose. I think that it can just be easier to bring a dog down a little bit and I think it probably just comes from the fact that we both live with three, well, six between us, quite high drive dogs. Um, But then I guess that brings us back to the quieter dog. So with a dog that is finding it really quite difficult and maybe is a little bit overwhelmed and refusing to take food outside, where would you start? So if I walked up to a brand new client and I had a dog they just wouldn't take food outside. Where would you start with me? What would you What would you do? I think I would start from what goes on in the house, to be honest. Um, and I sometimes find that when people say their dog won't take food outside, 
that we assume that that means that inside the house their dog is nice and engaged and will be able to train and be able to learn um, and sometimes I've found that actually that's not the case so I will ask what is the dog like in the house and if we're usually if you're going to one-to-one you're going to meet the dog in the house you're going to see what they're like in the house and actually when you then go to train something in the house they're also not really that fussed about food then and for me that's going to be a couple of things sometimes it is just as simple as what type of food they're using um, I had a client a couple of weeks ago who told me their dog didn't take food, they weren't interested at all um, and so they were really struggling with training and then we tried the treats that I had with me and they were like, oh my goodness, she's never been this interested in treats before, she's, she's taken treats, within minutes she was engaging beautifully with me and they were like, oh, and all it was was just finding a treat that she likes. Um, but obviously then it's not always going to be the case that it's just that you're not using the right treats. If the dog's not engaging in the house either, then to me that tells me that there's something going on in the relationship between the dog and the owner and that we need to work on that in the house first before we can expect it outside. That's really valid. I think it's one of those things that when dogs refuse food, it's so common for owners to just keep going up that scale as to what food to try. So they'll maybe start with kibble no response then they'll maybe move to waggy treats no response then that's when you start getting into like the hot dogs and the chicken and for some dogs that's just so overstimulating that again it just doesn't have the desired result so with that dog what i'd be quite inclined to do is you say you'd be looking at things in the relationship and maybe want to start looking at some free shaping to start to build the dog's confidence and taking food completely out the equation if that's what i think would work best So for example, if I have a dog who isn't really that engaged with the owner, they're not interested in any of the food, what I would try is different methods of delivery of the food. So for example, if I throw the food for the dog to catch, are they more inclined to get involved? If I roll the food along the floor, are they more inclined to get involved? I'd be really wanting to just see if I try and present that food in a different method, does it work? Does it maybe work better if I bring out a toy? Does a dog really love tug toys? Do they get more involved then? I guess that's just kind of following into a topic more so on reinforcement. But what I'd be really inclined to do with that little dog, or that quiet dog, would be find out what gets them going. What actually makes them tick would be my first go-to. And I think I'd really want to start playing some games with the dog that they can't fail. So, for example, 101 things to do with a box. It's not kind of like free shaping, but it would be a case of introducing the box and just really reinforcing that dog that anything that they do with that box is worthwhile doing. Sometimes once you show a dog how to start earning reinforcement, they're more inclined to take it and actually want to take it. Have you ever experienced that with some dogs that they don't really want to just eat out their food bowl, but if you start to do tricks with them, then they'll eat? And it's almost as if they want to, they, they enjoy that working. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And I think that for some dogs, it's almost like they're scared of getting it wrong. Um, and I think when we put pressure on them, um, I think when we start training with a dog, a lot of the time we need to be careful we're not asking too much of them too early. Um, and for me, doing something just fun with them at first to get them interested in the first place is, is a good way to do it. Um, just take the pressure off, don't ask too much and just see if that makes a bit of a difference. 
No, that's a really good idea. And I like what you say about some dogs are just scared of getting it wrong. Because I think that is a huge factor with some dogs. And we don't know their history with their human. And it doesn't mean that the human has intentionally been, you know, harsh on the dog for getting things wrong. But if a dog's only ever really kind of gotten attention when they've got things wrong, they're not going to necessarily want to go out there and start offering behaviours or taking food. So sometimes I think you have to show the dog how to earn reinforcement in order for the dog to want to work for reinforcement in the first place. And I guess when you're outside with a dog and you want engagement, you're asking that dog to work with you. And if that dog doesn't understand the concepts, they're, they're not really going to want to work with you because they don't understand how to work with you. And in order to have your dog take food outside and engage with you, if they're not doing either of them, you're not going to have much success, are you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a good place to start for some dogs. I think if you start with really low pressure, really high success rates for them, it gets them into that way of thinking of, okay, we're training now. Um, what I'm doing with my human is fun. There's no pressure on me. I'm not worried about getting things wrong. I'm not worried about the outcome. Um, then it leads them into that more open space of thinking that they can learn and that they can train and that they can offer up behaviours and learn new things. Definitely. And I think once you you start practising those behaviours in the house that you want to see outside, it becomes much easier to do the behaviours outside. There could also be reasons that your dog won't take food outside, such as being over-aroused by outside. You know, they could be anxious about outside. They could be overexcited. There's so many reasons why. And I think if you start your training outside, it's going to fail realistically you really need to be starting that training in a safe environment with high success rates as Gemma says to really show the dog what you want otherwise it's it's gonna be pointless really isn't it yeah definitely and I think sometimes advice that I see online is really unclear um when it comes to dogs like that and what I see a lot of is people encouraging you to just feed your dog when they're outside for seeing things or um, for being around things that they're uncomfortable with and I'm not entirely sure that just mindless feeding of the dog in those cases is the best thing to do. Why would that be? Why do you not think so? Because this is so against the grain. <laughs> why, why do you think that would be a good idea? Well not a good idea. I think if you're going to train you need to have a plan and for me if I'm going to start reinforcing something I need to know what I'm reinforcing. And if you're using food as a reinforcer and you're just reinforcing here or there, everywhere, not really having any rhyme or reason to it, and you're expecting a specific outcome from it, then you've set it up to fail. Because if you're expecting a specific outcome, you need a specific thing to reinforce. Um, And I'm just not entirely convinced that that's the best way to go about it. So I guess what you're saying is that sometimes when we see this advice to, you know, just stuff food in your dog's face and that'll help the situation, I guess sometimes that advice is given because the assumption is is that the dog is fearful of something in the environment, that they're uncertain. So by adding in that food, you're not so much training in the operant sense. What you're more so doing is conditioning the dog to feel comfortable. So you're kind of pairing that food and the feel-good feeling that you assume happens from food, keyword here, assume, you assume that that food makes the dog feel good. So when you're taking that outside, 
and you're like, oh my god, they, you know, they aren't engaging with me, they won't take any food, and you just proceed to really stuff, you know, that food in your dog's face, believing that the dog is nervous or anxious, and that you're really going to be counter-conditioning or desensitising that, well, I guess we more so counter-conditioning in this case, that emotion, but what we're not considering is maybe the dog isn't scared, and I think that's where this plan kind of falls apart a little bit. Because if the dog isn't scared, what are you counter-conditioning? There's nothing to counter-condition or desensitise to if the dog is not scared. So then that falls into what you're saying. It's more so mindless reinforcement because there's nothing to desensitise. Obviously in some cases there is. And that is not what we're saying here, that that's never the case. But a lot of the dogs that we do come across have been so... Fed for literally just not engaging with their owner, it's quite bizarre and I guess that the, you know, the route that the owner or the previous trainer was going down was assuming that they were desensitised and kind of conditioning the dog to a certain stimulus or to stop them from feeling so anxious. But what we don't really consider there is, although the, the kind of science of it would work in the case of this dog is anxious and it's nervous and that's why he doesn't want to engage and take food and then you're kind of pairing that with the food to then make the dog feel good but what if it doesn't make the dog feel good what if food doesn't make the dog feel good basically what if that food just makes the dog continue that behavior because they don't know what you expect from them and then that is where you fall into the category of mindlessly reinforcing dogs for just watching stuff and not engaging with you because you've got such a huge history now and the dog just looking at into the environment just staring into nothing and that could then fully creates its own issues if you aren't aware and you don't have a plan as to why your dog's doing something sometimes what i guess we would class as lat it would makes it just makes it a hundred times worse in my opinion because you've then got to undo that because you're not going to conditioning the dog but then we, we have to consider what the food actually is because if the food is not increasing the behaviour that you want, is it even reinforcing? Like, what is the food doing? Are you just mindlessly feeding your dog and they're just like, fuck off? I don't want food anymore because when we come outside, I don't know what you want from me. There's no clarity in the training. There's no guidance from you that I understand. So what is the food even doing? Like, it's obviously not creating the behaviour that you want, so it's then not reinforcement, is it? So what what the fuck is it? Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. And I think that's when you run the risk of just... It becomes really confusing for the dog. And at that point, then, when the food doesn't really mean anything to them, they're unlikely to want to take food from you again when you start training again. Because you've not built up that history of... And, and reliably being reinforced for something. Um, you've not followed the plan, you're just kind of going along. And I think it feeds into a sort of cycle where you've done that, the dog's not really understood what's going on. It's just having food presented to it. Yeah, okay, you might get it to eat the food, but in all honesty, it doesn't look very fussed about it and it's not excited by it and it's not working as a reinforcer. They're then not going to be very likely to take food from you again outside when you go and try that again, I don't think. So then that would then fall back into <clears throat> our things such as teaching behaviours that are really kind of high success rates. So for example, 101 things with a box or, you know, some basic mat work. Teaching the dog ways to gain reinforcement builds confidence in a dog. 
So with the dog already understanding these behaviours and what they do, you can then take that outside and you can transfer that and actually have it be useful. So that dog might not take food outside because you have a history of feeding the dog for nothing. You know, it could be because you thought you were counter conditioning. It could be because you thought just feeding the dog would make them look at you for more food, which I guess in some cases does work. But in this case, it clearly hasn't worked. So when you then start to add in your alternative behaviours, such as your mat work or maybe a really nice sit or a hand touch, the dogs are more likely to engage because they're like, oh, I know what that is. It's predictable. I know what's going to happen next. They know that when you ask for that hand touch or you lay the mat down, that they can go and lie on it or they can offer that target and they can either get reinforcement or they can actually just get the buzz of doing something that they enjoy. And after all, that is how positive reinforcement training works. It builds up a reinforcement history and a behaviour and it then allows us to take that behaviour into other situations and use it effectively. What do you think? Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And I think one of the best things about that is having a whole host of behaviours in your armoury too. Because um, I think a lot of dogs, we assume that a behaviour like sit is really easy for a dog. But if your dog is not really comfortable in the environment or they're a bit over-aroused by something in it, a sit's actually really hard. Um, we assume it's easy, but it's not. Um, and I find a lot of dogs actually will have a little bit more success with more of an active behaviour so something even like a pause up or pause on something um like you said like a hand touch which you can add a bit of movement into um something that gets their body moving a little bit sometimes is is better than a static sit um and expecting them to sit and wait in that or to to watch whatever it is that that you're working with so really why won't my dog take food outside can it actually tracks back to your relationship with your dog and what you do with your dog inside? <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not just as simple as your dog won't take food outside, so you have to work on that outside. Sometimes by bringing that behaviour inside, you can in fact get a much better result and better resolution all round. Yeah, definitely. I think so. So our advice to you, if you're working with a dog that will not take food outside, you need to look at why. You need to look at what the dog does in the house, what actually reinforces them in the first place, and maybe take it from there. And be mindful in how you are planning your sessions. Sounds good. Well, that's us reached the end of the episode already. Dog training is forever evolving and we strive to keep an open mind and the dogs at the centre of everything that we do. You can find us across social media platforms using our tag at House of Herders and we would love for you to join in that conversation with us. Until next time, bye!